invite you to grab a Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 14. <clears throat> John 14 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to say uh, it is really, really good to be together this morning. I'm excited to be able to preach God's Word, to share God's Word with you. Um, and I really, even on the outset of our time, just wanted to say thank you uh, my family, my wife Amy, two young kids, Piper and Calvin, we've been at Coastal Church now for almost a year. We came to serve, uh, I came to serve in this family pastor role in the summer of 21, and in a really short time, this church family has become home in so many ways. Like, you guys have just a- adopted our family. Our kids feel loved here. My wife feels loved here. We want to be here for a long time, Lord willing. And so I'm grateful, uh, really, for the, the welcome that this church family has shown mine. And I'm excited to share the word with us this morning. So, John 14, we're in week two of our What is Jesus Doing Now series. And I think much like last week, our time in the word today should be hopefully really encouraging. John 14 is a passage that many of you are familiar with. There's both enormous comfort and very real challenge in these words. And so here's what our time together will look like this morning. We'll read the text together and pray. We'll unpack some of the context behind the words of Jesus in John 14. And then we'll pull out three key points of encouragement and application for, from this text. But here's where I want to offer a word just right off the bat. We'll see in a second that as we read it, John 14 is a conversation where It's almost a process where Jesus brings his disciples from a point of not really having a clue what he's saying to finally getting a clearer picture of what he's saying. And it doesn't happen instantly. And for much of our passage, we'll see this. The disciples are actually kind of confused. In verses 5 and verses 8 of John 14, the disciples either ask questions of Jesus or make requests of Jesus that reveal to us that they're wrestling with what he's communicating to them. And our time in the Word this morning might feel similar just for a minute because the hope that's promised in the first two or three verses of this text is real and it matters and it should be comforting to our souls, but there's also a chance that it might feel just for a minute insufficient. Again, just for a second. And I know this, I'm confident of it because this is how the disciples felt. Again, we see they don't immediately understand what he's saying. And so here's what I'm asking. Hang with me this morning because we're going to see the process of how Jesus brings his disciples and by extension how he brings us to a point where the hope and comfort promised in this text is brought to bear on our souls. How it offers us real and lasting and genuine encouragement, not just for the future, but for where we are right now. And so that's kind of my introduction. Hang with me. I'm going to read God's word together and we'll see what I mean. Let's read. John 14, this is the word of God, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If, I, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a holy moment where we get to open up your word and study it 
and read it and apply it to our lives, God. We know that what we're doing here is a supernatural activity, one that the church has been engaged in for 2,000 years. We get to play a part, to be a part in that right now. And so, Father, we claim the promises of your word. We know that it is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We know that it will not return void, that it is not bound, that it will not fail to accomplish the purposes for which you have set it forth, oh God. And so we pray, Psalm 119, may you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's set the scene in John 14. At this point in John's gospel, the vast majority of Jesus' earthly ministry has already happened, and the conversation that we're seeing here is taking place during what's referred to as the upper room discourse, which is the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. And so in John 14, Jesus was only hours away from the cross and is using this time to prepare his disciples emotionally, physically, spiritually for what was about to take place. And it's important for our context this morning that the biblical chapters and verse divisions in the text are not the works of the original writers. And so John 14, 1 is simply a continuation of the concluding words of John 13. And so the admonition, do not let your hearts be troubled, it's not happening in a vacuum. It has to be taken in light of Jesus' announcement that he was going to die. We see this in John 13, verses 31 through 35. And his prediction of Peter's betrayal, verses or verse 38 of chapter 13. So you can, you can look up in your physical Bibles and see what's going on. So after three and a half years of life and ministry with Jesus, they've seen some incredible things, he's basically telling his disciples in this text, I'm leaving you. Like, I'm going away. I'm going to die. Peter's going to fall away. And you won't even make it through the night without me. So that's the backdrop for our text this morning. That's what's happening in John 14.1. I want us, like right off the bat, like imagine the, the severity and the weight of this moment for the disciples. The anxiety, like the emotional turmoil, like they believe in Jesus. They've seen his power, they've been in his presence, they've confessed him as Lord, they've worshiped him as God. But in this moment, their future seems like it's totally up in the air. The text implies it in verse 1. They are troubled in heart. And I'm guessing for some of you here this morning, this hits really close to home. Like you know and love God. You believe and love Jesus. But at times, anxiety about the future or the present can seem absolutely overwhelming, like crippling even. Like we live in an anxious age, and the church is not immune to this. And whether it's anxiety about a marriage that's barely hanging on or wondering how the budget is going to handle gas prices and inflation or anxiety about a child who's straying from the faith. Like, it can be really hard in this moment to, to see and figure out how things are going to be okay, how they'll work out. And, and Jesus responds to this type of anxiety in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is both a comfort and a command from Christ. And it tells us right off the bat that we have some type of control here over our anxiety. That we have a role to play over our emotions. That the disciples had some control over their anxiety. In this passage of the word, God gives us an antidote to anxiety. Belief and trust in Christ as God. Jesus says it in the second half of verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
But there's more to it than that. Like, I don't want to sound overly simplistic this morning because this belief in Jesus is pointing to something. Verses 2 and 3, we're to believe that Jesus is going to prepare a place, that Jesus will come again, and that where Jesus will be, we will be also. So this leads us to point number one. Let not your hearts be troubled because we will be with Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled because we will be with Jesus. So this is the overarching motive behind his words here in John 14. He wants his disciples, if by extension us, to be encouraged. Verse one, let not your hearts be troubled, or in other words, be encouraged. And why? The Bible tells us we'll be with Christ. This is the key to this passage. Verse three, you might underline it in your Bibles. It says this, where I am, you may be also. And so we can take heart and let our hearts not be troubled, ultimately, because we'll be with Christ. Like where he is, that's where we'll be. First Thessalonians chapter four unpacks this idea more fully. Paul writes this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Look at what words are supposed to be encouraging here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 17, we will always be with the Lord. We get to be with him. Paul says it again in verse 18. Like this should be an encouragement to the Christian. So verses 2 and 3 of John 14 are now going to give us the where and the how. So where will we be with God? How will we be with God? And where? Verse 2, the where. In my father's house, there are many rooms. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Now, this word rooms here in the original language is how the King James Version ended up with mansions, which kind of puts pictures in our minds of like different classes of properties, right? Like if you are a really spiritual, really holy Christian, you might get yourself like a beachfront mansion in the kingdom of God. Or if you're just like a regular average Christian, maybe you go to church two or three times a week and you tithe, sometimes you get like a basement level apartment. Like that's an unfortunate and really unclear picture that we're seeing in God's word. It's not true. A more accurate translation of this text is simply dwelling place within a house. It's not mansions. So what this does is it takes the focus off of the lavishness of the dwelling place and puts the focus on the place of heaven in the sense that all we need to know is that with God, there is sufficient room for all followers of Christ. So it's not mansions, it's the fact that we'll dwell with God. That's the focus, and we'll see more of this later on. So verses two and three, the how. How is Jesus going to prepare a place? This is where where it gets a little tricky, theologically. Because if Jesus is going to prepare a place, was the house of God not already prepared? Was it not already ready for believers in Jesus? And, And how exactly is Jesus going to prepare this place? And this is where there are even evangelical commentators that are divided. There's room for a couple different interpretations here. There's some that think that Jesus is referencing a place in human hearts for the Holy Spirit or that Jesus is making preparations for the final heavenly city, but I think his words are clearer than that. When Jesus is speaking about going to prepare a place, he's speaking literally that in just a few hours, he'll go to the cross, die for our sins, and then rise from the grave. And in so doing, preparing the way for Christians to have access to this dwelling place we see in verse 2. So D.A. Carson is helpful here. I'll quote him at length. Carson says this. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The words 
presuppose, the words presuppose that the place exists before Jesus gets there. It's not that he arrives on the scene and then begins to prepare the place. Rather, in the context of Johannine theology, it is the going itself via the cross and resurrection that prepares the place for Jesus' disciples. So Carson is arguing here that by going to prepare a place, Jesus is heading towards the cross. It's literal. And his subsequent resurrection, the cross and the empty tomb, is the work that's preparing the way to the place where Jesus is talking about. So what's not yet ready in John 14 and in need of preparation is our way into God's presence. And that's what Jesus provides by his death on the cross and his rising from the dead. Now think about this, church. Like we are looking at John 14 on the other side of the cross. And so praise God. Like the the place for us has already been prepared. So we see that Jesus is going to prepare a dwelling place. We know now on the other side of the cross that that place, that chance to be with him is prepared. It's complete. And when we understand that, when we grasp that in our hearts, in our souls, it changes the way we live on earth. It shifts our perspective. So let me make this really practical. Letter A. Because we will be with Jesus, our perspective on suffering changes. Because we will be with Jesus, our perspective on suffering changes. And so we need to make a critical distinction here. Suffering is different from anxiety. It's not the same thing. We've seen it's possible to be troubled in heart and to be anxious. And when that's the case, the word is clear. It exhorts us to trust in Jesus, to believe in him as God, to cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, to be anxious about nothing, Matthew chapter 6. So let not our hearts be troubled. That's the command, right? But there's also a deep comfort to these words, almost another layer of depth to their meaning, because it's possible to be troubled in heart because you're walking through suffering, not as a result of anxiety, but simply as a result of living in a broken and fallen world. And when that's the case, and we keep at the forefront of our minds, the reality that one day we'll be with Jesus, it provides us with strength and encouragement and perspective in our suffering because it means that our suffering will end. Like it's coming to an end. It's temporary. And there will be a time when we'll be with Christ and that our suffering will cease and that our suffering is preparing for us an even sweeter homecoming with Christ. We've talked about this before as a church. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There is glory coming, Christian. There's glory coming for us, like a glory beyond all comparison. When one day we'll be with Christ. But right now, it's really, really hard. Like it's hard. We suffer. We see all around us, like sickness and death, cancer, there was another cancer case that came across our desk as pastors at Coastal this week. That was absolutely devastating. We see layoffs and, and divorce and miscarriage. Like, not the, not the anxiety over these things, but the suffering because of these things. And like, we live in a world full of brokenness, and at times the weight and the grief that these things cause can seem overwhelming. And I know that for many of you here this morning, you're walking through this right now, not anxious, just suffering. You're here with heavy hearts. And if that's you this morning, like, I just want to say, in the effort of full transparency, I've been there. Actually, in that right now. So I mentioned that that the past year has been 
incredible to be at Coastal. It has. We love this church family and are grateful for the support this family has provided us. But on a personal level, it has been a season of very real and intense loss. In October of 2021, uh, my wife Amy, her grandfather, passed away. In January of this year, 22, my grandfather died. Then immediately after my grandfather's death, my grandmother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was just checked into hospice last week. She has weeks, possibly months. And then just two months ago, beginning of March, I lost my dad. So she's been like one thing after another. My dad was really far from God. I did not grow up in a Christian home. And over the last 10 years, I shared the gospel with my dad about 50 times. And I was rejected about 50 times. But as the end drew near for him, about a week before he died, we had one last phone conversation. And again, I pleaded with him to trust in Christ. I shared the hope of eternal life. He was anxious about death. And he told me for the first time ever, Colin, I think I'm ready to have that conversation. So I, over the phone, instantly, I was like, man, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm going to try everything I can to lead him to Christ right now over the phone. He didn't want to have it. Wasn't interested. Said, no, 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 we'll talk when you get down. We'll talk when you get down. At the time, I was in the Middle East with Pastor Andrew. We're on a mission trip. And so I made plans to visit my dad down in Florida to say goodbye one last time after I got back from the Middle East. In the providence of God, I ended up with COVID at the end of our trip. And so I, my flight was delayed to South Florida, and my dad ended up passing away about 48 hours before I was able to go down and see him one last time. Until the day he died, he did not want to talk about the gospel. Only wanted to talk about it in person. And so, unless, unless God worked a miracle in his final moments, which God can do, my dad died outside of the love of Christ, which means he's now in a place that is too horrifying to describe. And I'll be honest, like, I've since wrestled with God, especially in light of my dad saying, hey, Colin, I'm ready for that conversation. Like, I've asked, like, God, why would you, why would you let me get COVID then? Like, why could I not have gone down and pleaded with him one last time? And so I share all that to say, like, that suffering, that grief, like, it's real. I'm in the middle of it right now. But let me be real direct with you this morning. The only thing the only thing that has gotten me through this time, that has sustained me in the midst of trial and grief and pain is the news that I will one day be with Jesus. And like knowing on that day, there's coming a day where he will wipe away every tear from my eye and death and sickness will be no more. Suffering will end and that I and we as a church will experience a glory that is beyond all comparison, that we will live and reign with Christ for 10,000 years and then forevermore. Like, that day is coming, church. And I could trust him in my suffering, knowing that he's working all of it for his good, for his glory, for my good, and to prepare me for glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says this, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we can trust him with our suffering. We can trust him in our grief, in our, our hearts being troubled because he is good and he's preparing us for glory. So let not your hearts be troubled, church, because we will be with Jesus and suffering will end. That's good news for us. But it's not just our outlook on suffering that will change in light of this news. It's also our outlook on prosperity. Letter B, 
because we will be with Jesus, our perspective on prosperity changes. First, a quick note on this, just so we're all on the same page. Many of us, myself included, have become conditioned when we hear the word prosperity to imagine like pastors with private jets and million dollar salaries, and, and rightly so, right? Like the so-called prosperity gospel is running rampant all across the world. Preachers have basically figured out that if you promise health and wealth and success, if you believe in Jesus, it's pretty easy to draw a crowd. I trust we know this, but it's worth stating, Coastal, that is not the gospel. We know that. Like nowhere in the Bible are we promised material blessing, physical well-being, or corporate success for following Jesus. It's actually the opposite. The scriptures teach us that in this world we will have trouble, John 16, that all who wish to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if the world hated Jesus, there's a good chance it hates us, John 15. But here's the deal. We have to be wary of overcorrecting and assuming that prosperity in and of itself is inherently evil. It's not. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Prosperity is a biblical word. In Joshua chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 1, the scriptures teach us that in a very real way, our ways will prosper if we meditate on the word of the Lord. So prosperity, times of abundance, those are good things, things that are okay to desire. But listen, because of this eternal perspective, this idea that we'll be with Jesus, our outlook on prosperity in this life should change. Imagine it this way. Imagine if I checked into a hotel room on an overnight, like one night stay, and I like, you know, swipe my key card, I walk into the hotel room, I set my bag on the bed, and I unzip my bag. Imagine if the first thing I did was start hanging up pictures on the walls. Or if I got out some power tools and started looking at how I could renovate the bathroom. <laughs> or if you know me, I handed the power tools to my wife, and she started renovating the bathroom. <laughs> like, that'd be crazy. Because it's not where I live, it's not my home, it's a temporary residence. Like, Christians, we need to have the same mindset when we look at our lives here on earth. Like, this world is temporary. It's passing quickly. And so we must be wary of making ourselves too at home here. Philippians 3.20 tells us our citizenship is in heaven, where we'll dwell with Jesus. That's where we belong. And so the question for us is clear. How are we stewarding what God has gifted us with for the good of the church and for the advancement of the gospel? Like, think more than money here. God can and has prospered us in many different ways. Pastor Sean helpfully gives us three consistent categories at Coastal here all the time. Time, talent, and treasure. And our text this morning makes it clear. John 14, 3, Jesus is coming for us. We'll be with him. We'll see him face to face. And that should shift our outlook on prosperity. Because on that day, when we meet Jesus... What's going to matter is not the size of our bank accounts or our 401ks or how good our golf game is or I'm going to poke here, how many travel sports trophies our kids have won. Like, no, on that day is what's going to matter is, is how we've used our time and talent and treasure that God has given us to advance the gospel and build up his church. That's what's going to matter. When we know that we'll be with Jesus, our lives look different. They look different. Our perspective on suffering changes and our perspective on prosperity changes. But here's the thing. That day, right, when we'll be with Jesus, when we'll see him face to face, unless his return is imminent, unless he returns right now, for most of us, and I want to speak carefully here, but for most of us, that day probably won't be today or tomorrow. 
So while this comfort, this perspective that one day we'll be with Jesus, it's helpful, hopefully encouraging to our hearts, it doesn't really address the fragile marriage in the room right now. It doesn't really address the loneliness that you're experiencing right now or the fact that right now you can't stand your job. What does it do for you right now? And so you could say, okay, Colin, I get it. Like, we look forward to heaven and the day where we'll one day be with Jesus. That's good, but that moment is so far away. It's either at death or the second coming of Christ. So what does that do for me right now? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because we're about to see in this passage a shift. A shift in focus from the promise of heaven to the person of Jesus. And ultimately, that's where the true encouragement from John 14 will come from. This isn't a heaven-centered text. It's a Christ-centered text. So this leads us to point number two. Our hope is in a person and not a place. Our hope is in a person and not a place. Look with me again at verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, take you to myself, that where I am going, you may be also. So the words that Jesus chooses here are so significant because the focus isn't on the place, it's on the person. Not heaven, but Jesus. In other words, Jesus is our heaven. Like, think about it. What is heaven? Dwelling in the immediate presence of Jesus. And so notice this, back with our first point. Our perspective on suffering changes, not because one day we'll be in heaven, but because one day we'll be with Jesus. His presence is the goal. His presence, being with him. We see this all over the Bible. First Chronicles 16.11 puts it this way. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Psalm 16.11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the psalmist isn't writing about a place called heaven. He's writing about a person. Where can we find fullness of joy in Psalm 16? In his presence. And so we can't look at John 14 and think that Jesus is talking about his second coming and how he'll one day take us to heaven. Those are true things. They will happen, but that's not the point of what he's saying, church. Instead, he promises us that he'll take us to himself and that where he is, that's where we'll be, in the immediate presence of Christ. Think about it this way. In Revelation 21 and 22, we get this incredible picture of heaven, like streets lined with gold, precious gems covering every wall and every gate, the river of the water of life flowing through the middle of this perfect, beautiful city. It's incredible. But do you know what the sweetest part of this text is? Revelation, this picture of heaven, it's chapter 22, verse 4, talking about us and God. They shall see his face. They'll see his face. And then earlier in chapter 21, verse 3, now the dwelling of God is with man. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Like this, this union with Christ, this gift of being able to dwell in the perfect and immediate presence of God, like this is our focus. It's what we live for. Now again, if any of this sounds like overly theoretical or a little too philosophical to be of much help to you, then rest assured, at this point in the passage, the disciples were right there with you, right there with us. They didn't quite get it yet. We see this in verse 5. Verse 5 of John 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? What's going on here? We see that Thomas is still focused on the place. 
He knows that Jesus is about to leave and he's troubled in heart, wondering how in the world he's supposed to get to this place that Christ is talking about and what good the hope of heaven will do for him in the right here and right now. But what have we seen so far? The emphasis is not on the place, it's on the person of Jesus. So look at his response in verse 6. Thomas asks him the way and he responds by saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. So Thomas is seeing Jesus as a means to an end, and Jesus is telling Thomas that he himself is the end. He is the end. In the same way, if we look at our own lives, if we consider Jesus, we look at Jesus for what he can do for us, or the access that Jesus can grant us into heaven, then we're missing out on what heaven will really be about, the immediate presence of Christ. Picture it this way. Imagine your favorite place on earth, like if you're a traveler, like the coolest place you've ever been, or if you're not much of a traveler, like imagine this like beachside paradise, or if you're more of a mountain guy, think about this resort in the mountains, perfect place, perfect weather, where the temperature is always ideal, and you get perfect recreational activities, right? Whatever hobby you love here right now, you can do that whenever you want it, however you want it, at this perfect place. And you never get tired of it. Imagine the food. Like, picture your favorite meal on earth. You can eat that meal as many times as you want. It's not going to do anything to your waistline, and you'll never get tired of it. Perfect sleep. A body that doesn't hurt. The, The people you love most are there with you in this perfect place. So you have all of your best friends with you. You have some of your family with you. Perfect place. And in this place, there's no relational conflict. There's no strife. There's no sin. There's no sickness. No one ever dies. But imagine if Jesus wasn't there. Like, would you want to go to that place? Honestly, as a pastor, I can confess before you that sometimes I'm tempted to go to that place. And that means I need to repent. Because it shows, it communicates that I miss, I miss the point of what heaven really is. It's about Jesus. And so let me put this as plainly as I can. If Christ is not enough for us now, if we aren't satisfied and content in him here on earth, then he won't be enough for us in heaven because heaven is all about Jesus. And listen, it's so easy to kick the can down the road here. To tell yourself that you'll really get serious about following Jesus later, or you'll pursue contentment in Christ later, or after you get through whatever it is you're trying to get through, that's when you'll truly be satisfied in Jesus. But I'm telling you, if you're waiting to be content in Christ until you graduate high school, or get into college, or get the degree, if you think you're waiting for contentment in Christ until you get that perfect job, or you think, man, I can just be happy in Christ if I get the promotion, Or man, I could be happy in Christ if God would only give me a spouse, then I'd really be content in Christ. Or if you're married, if God would just give me children, like if God would provide for us children, that's when my true contentment will start. Or if you've got young kids or older kids and you think, man, maybe I'll just be happy when my kids finally leave the house, we'll be empty nesters again. Like that's the moment where I'll have contentment in Christ. I mean, if you think, if I can just get to retirement, like, let me just get there, and then my peace and my fulfillment in Christ will happen. Like, if that's you, and it's been me before, then you're missing the point of this text. There will always be another thing to get through and another thing to look forward to. We need to have contentment in Christ now. 
He's enough for us now. We're going to see this in a second. But I want to share a story, <laughs> Amy and I. My wife, if you know Amy, um, we sit down every Sunday night to have what we call Sunday night check-in time, where as husband and wife, we sit down, Bible's open, and we just ask each other about how our time in the Word is going and uh, how we can be praying for each other if there are any sin struggles. And then we shift the conversation usually to our upcoming family calendar. Um, if you have young kids or kids at all, you'll totally get what I'm saying here. We find ourselves saying, like, week after week, it's become a joke now, after this week, things will slow down. <laughs> Anyone ever said that before? Like, after this week, things will slow down. And we're kidding ourselves. Like, it's kind of become an inside joke. We've realized that, like, part of being an adult is, in America is simply saying, after this week, things will slow down week after week until you die. <laughs> Like, that's it. But church, here's the point. Like, right here, right now, in the middle of our mess, our brokenness, our busy schedules, like, Christ is sufficient for us. He's enough, and he says it himself in verse 8, or verse 9. In verse 8, Philip asks Jesus. He says he wants something that's enough. He says in verse 8, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. That'll be sufficient. And Jesus responds to Philip in verse 9 by saying, you still don't know me, Philip. The disciples aren't getting it. You still don't know me, Philip. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. And Philip's line of thinking here is probably similar to many of ours when we hear that one day we'll be with Jesus. It's almost like Philip is saying, okay, that's all good. I look forward to that. But what about right now? Like, think about your life. What about right now? It's falling apart right now. Marriage is crumbling right now. Failing, health is failing right now. Like, you need immediate help. And this is the good news, church. We don't have to wait to be with Jesus physically because he offers himself to us as sufficient and enough spiritually. All we need right here and right now. He says it in this text, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, you don't have to wait to see the Father, you have him right here, right now. And even as I prepare to leave you for a little while, Jesus says he's sending a helper to us. Like this is some of the sweetest These are some of the sweetest words in the entire New Testament. John 14, verses 16 and 18. I want us to see this. Jesus says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So significant. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He will not leave us by ourselves, church. He promises to come to us. He doesn't just expect us to manage our life, to manage our suffering, to endure our suffering here on our own. We don't have to just white-knuckle it to heaven by our own strength. No, Jesus promises to help us get there. Like So much so that he sends his spirit to dwell in us, to live in us. So in the immediate physical absence of Jesus, which is where we are right now, we don't see him, The spirit of Christ dwells in us. And this spirit of Christ produces in us a joy that is indescribable. 1 Peter 1, 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Like, brothers and sisters, know this. While we long for and look forward to the day where we be united with Christ physically, we're sustained and empowered here and now by Christ spiritually through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this text shows us this. It shows us the Trinity working in unison perfectly and beautifully, all for the good of the believer and for the exaltation of Christ. 
So seeing and meditating on Jesus, like right here where we are, through the indwelling Holy Spirit is enough to sustain us through loneliness and parenting and marriage and failing health and heartbreak. He hasn't left us. He is with us. And when we study and marvel at him in his word, we seek his face in prayer. When we lean on him through fasting, we praise him together corporately in community like we're doing today. Jesus satisfies our souls and upholds us with his righteous right hand until we meet him face to face. And on your darkest days, on your weakest days, when life is the hardest, he says to you, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. On your darkest and weakest days, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I want us to see this. Our focus and our hope, it's not in a place, it's in the person of Jesus. He's not a means to an end. He is the end and he is enough. He is sufficient for our souls right here and right now. All right, finally, point number three. The exclusivity of the gospel demands a response. The exclusivity of the gospel demands a response. So let me first explain what I mean when I say the word gospel. It's a word that we use a ton here as a church, and if you're just joining us for the first time this morning, you're relatively new to Coastal, or you're exploring Christianity, like know this, we're so glad you're here, and I want to encourage you to dial in, especially for this part. When we talk about the gospel, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's love for us in the person and work of Jesus. This book, from cover to cover, tells the story of a God who is perfect and holy and righteous and pure. He is just and kind. He's creative and relational. And he's created us, man and woman, in his image to be in a relationship with him, to know him, and to enjoy him forever and ever. It's good news. But the Bible tells us about bad news. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which tells us that I've sinned, you've sinned, we have all sinned and separated ourselves from God. When we sin one time, there's an immediate separation in that relationship that we were created for, and there's an eternal separation. When we sin, we can't be with God. If he simply waved away our sin, he would no longer be holy. He wouldn't be perfect anymore, and he is perfect. He's also loving. So much so that the good news of the gospel is that God did not leave us in that state of separation, church. He sent his son, Jesus, fully God and fully man, to come down to earth, to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial, substitutionary death on a cross, a death that we deserved, where he bore the weight of my sin and your sin. Then Jesus rose from the grave three days later, making a way, he is the way, for us to have forgiveness, reconciliation with the Father, and we can enter into this relationship that we were created for, which starts now. John 10 promises us abundant life, and the Bible promises us eternal life in Christ. That's the gospel, but there's an exclusive claim in this gospel that I want us to see. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is making an exclusive claim here. Think about how bold this is. No one comes to the Father except through me. This one sentence from Jesus is enough to counter any claim that he was some sort of moral teacher or that he taught that all roads lead to heaven. No, he's saying that he's the only way into the presence of God. That isn't something that a good moral teacher would say. And I've heard before that it's unfair or not realistic that God would only give people one way to get to himself. 
But remember, God is holy. He's just. He didn't even have to make a way. And so instead of asking why, God, did you make one way, just one way, our response should be to fall on our knees and praise him that there is a way, church. And knowing that Jesus is that way, the only way, demands a response on our part this morning. Letter A, surrender to Jesus as Lord. Surrender to Jesus as Lord. Listen, we have talked about Christ a ton this morning, how knowing that we'll be with him encourages our hearts, shifts our perspective, how he's enough for us, he's sufficient for our souls right here, right now, but I'm willing to bet that some of you are still not convinced. Like you hear these things about Jesus, but you don't see him having any kind of tangible impact on your day-to-day life. You don't see how he affects your life. Like Jesus might be a part of your Sunday, but if you were to be really honest with yourself this morning, your overall response to Jesus, the claims of Christ and the gospel is one of a kind of indifference. Like he's really real and he's good, but this language about him being sufficient, about him changing everything, like that language doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't relate, it doesn't move you. And so I was thinking about that this week. And I wanted to try something in my own personal Bible reading time. So the Bible plan I have right now is taking me through the Gospel of Mark. And so I went through the Gospel of Mark, and I marked down, looked at every reaction that someone had to Jesus to see if there was a category for indifference, to see if you could meet Jesus and walk away unaffected. So I wrote them all down. I'll just read a couple. You'll pick up on the theme here very, very quickly. But I wanted to see how did people react to Jesus. I'm just going to use the adjective, astonished amazed, filled with great fear. Everyone marveled, immediately overcome with amazement, utterly astounded. Like, you see what's happening? Like, not once in the Gospel of Mark does someone meet Jesus and then walk away indifferent. Like, whether it's outrage or it's awe, the person of Jesus demands a response from us. And so I want to put this both as gently and as directly as I can, if you are bored by Jesus, then there's a really good chance that you don't know Jesus. Like you can't actually know him and be bored by him. And I'm not saying that Christians will never go through dry seasons in their walks with Christ because that does happen, but I am saying that if you've never experienced what the Puritans called affection for Jesus, if you've never experienced joy in Jesus, you've never seen the fruit that comes from walking with Jesus, then it's likely that you don't know Jesus. And like, if you're here this morning and that's you, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to know him because in him there's fulfilling life and peace and purpose. And in him, the most important thing that he provides for us is reconciliation to the Father. We want you to know him. So if there's even a chance in your own life that you have not yet surrendered to him as Lord, if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in him for forgiveness, then I want to urge you this morning, do not leave without coming and talking to us about it. We'll have members of our prayer team on both sides at the bottom of the sanctuary down here. We want to walk with you and wrestle with you through this decision to discern if you have surrendered to Jesus as Lord. Because more than anything, we want you to know him. He himself is the way, the fullness of all truth, and in him there's both abundant and everlasting life. Surrender to Jesus as Lord. But the exclusivity of the gospel doesn't just demand a response from those who don't yet know Jesus. There's also a response warranted from the Christian. Here's where I want to invite the band back out. We're going to worship here in a second, but I'll close with this. Letter B. 
share Jesus as Savior. So we surrender to Jesus as Lord and we share Jesus as Savior. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, Coastal Church, if we have seen the sufficiency of Christ in our own lives, then the exclusivity of the gospel, no one comes to the Father except through me, should compel us and motivate us to share the gospel with the lost. Like there's a lost and dying world out there that needs the hope of Christ. Go back with me to the gospel of Mark. I looked again at people who trusted in Jesus or had some kind of encounter with Jesus to see how that meeting with Jesus impacted their lives. And every single time someone met Jesus and he changed them, they couldn't stop talking about him. Like, do our lives look like that? Does my life look like that? Like, if we've actually met Jesus, if we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, are our lives characterized by a zeal to spread the gospel with the lost? Like, God has put every single one of us in intentional circles of influence, whether that be your family, your friends, your workplace, your neighborhood. God's put you around people that need to know the hope of Jesus. And so think about your own life. If you've seen that he's sufficient, if you've seen him uphold you through suffering, if you've seen him be near to you when you were brokenhearted, if his grace has been sufficient for you in any way, then our natural response must be to share that grace and that gospel and that hope with people that we care about. Like, what if, church, what if over the next 12 months, everyone in this room led one person to Christ? Simply because come alongside someone and you say, man, I've seen God be so real and so near to me. He's loved me so well, so faithfully. And I care about you enough to want to share that with you and bring you into that same love and that same relationship that I've seen in my life. That's the response from us as Christians. We have seen his sufficiency. We have tasted his goodness. He has been faithful to us. So we can't keep that to ourselves, church. So in a second, we're gonna sing and go out singing about the holiness of God, how he is holy and holy and holy, how there's no one like him. And as we do that, I wanna encourage you to meditate and think about the times in your life when God has been there for you. When he's been near to you, when he's ministered to your heart, when he's upheld you with his righteous right hand. And I want to encourage you to allow that meditation to turn into verbal praise as we praise him together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for Jesus, for your plan of redemption, for the access that we have to you because of Jesus. We praise you and we thank you for you are a good and kind and gracious and a holy God. And so I pray for those this morning with heavy hearts, those that are suffering, I pray that they would come and receive prayer. They would come and, and be ministered to. They'd be mindful of the words in Psalm 34, 18, that you are close to the brokenhearted, that you save those who are crushed in spirit. I got part of what we get to do as a church is to build each other up through prayer, through encouragement and exhortation. I pray for those who don't know you, Jesus, who are trying really hard to tune me out. God, I pray that your spirit would lay a weight of conviction on them. They would come up and talk to us, that they would surrender their lives to you, Christ, as Lord, and they would receive abundant life, and they would see that you are enough. So God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your love for us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray.
church. Let's go out standing and sing together.